Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Great singing, church. Great singing. The Lord is our salvation. Who is like the Lord our God, mighty to save, and only He can save. I'm really excited this morning because the theme of this wonderful story that we're going to look at in Isaiah 37 is that the Lord and the Lord alone is our salvation. If you open up to Isaiah 37, the theme of this story is that the Lord's our salvation and there's no one mighty to save except the Lord. Actually, this story is so good and it's so important that it's also included in 2 Kings 18 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And the theme of this story is that if you trust in the Lord God for salvation, you've placed your trust in the right place. But if you place your trust anywhere else, you've placed your trust in the wrong place. The reason Isaiah recorded this story on that day that he wrote it is the same reason that this congregation is opening up this story today. And it's that we need to place our confidence in God and in God alone for salvation. The story of Hezekiah's deliverance from Sennacherib is the climax of the first half of Isaiah's book. And the reason it climaxes it is because it just, it just puts an absolute symbol crash and exclamation point on this fact that only the Lord God saves Because the salvation here, it's a battle between two nations, but it has nothing to do with the spears and the horses and the shields and the tactics and the human means. The Lord provides the salvation. The characters in this story are Hezekiah, who's the king of Judah, God's people, And this other king named Sennacherib, who's the king of Assyria, and he's the enemy of God's people. And uh, King Sennacherib is like so proud and he wants to keep his royal robes so clean that he sends this henchman, this this spokesman named the Rabshakeh to to talk to Judah about how Assyria is just going to wipe them out. And we looked at the first half of the story last week in chapter 36. The story will conclude this week in chapter 37, and it has four sort of acts. Act one is that King Hezekiah realizes that he's got nothing but God and the prophet and prayer. And then in act two, the king of Assyria speaks up against the king of Judah, King Hezekiah. And then in act three, essentially the most important act, King Hezekiah speaks out to the king of the universe, the living God, in his prayer in 14 through 20. And then in Act 4, the king of the universe has something to say and do to the king of Assyria, who has stood against his people. And we'll look at this story of God's salvation and we'll see how it relates to what is going on in your life this week and how you ought to be praying and relying on God about it. So as we look at God's word, let's bow together in prayer and ask his help. Holy Spirit, truth divine, dawn upon this soul of mine, word of God and inward light, wake my spirit, clear my sight. Holy Spirit, love divine, burn within this heart of mine. 
kindle every high desire, perish self in thy pure fire. Holy Spirit, law divine, reign within this will of mine. Be my law and I shall be firmly bound, forever free. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's pick up the story in, in uh, Isaiah 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke those words that the Lord your God has heard. And therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that's left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he'll hear a rumor and return to his own land and I'll make him fall by the sword in his own land. This is the opening act where King Hezekiah realizes the situation is dire. The circumstances are grim the hopes of earthly solutions are slim to none. And he realizes he's got nothing but the Lord. In verse 1, it says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, that it is the sermon that I delivered last Sunday on chapter 36. In chapter 36, verse 5, the king of Assyria, through his spokesman, the Rabshakeh, hollered out to the people of Judah, verse 5, Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And look at his threats in verse 12 of chapter 36. The Rabshakeh said, uh, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to all the men who are sitting on the wall who are now doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? And Rabshakeh called out with a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you. Such threats and such disregard for the word of God, the promise of God, and the power of God. Hezekiah, it says in verse 1 of our text, As soon as Hezekiah heard all this, what did he do? He tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Hezekiah realized that he had nothing. He faced such trouble, but facing such trouble emptied him of himself and made him, made him run to God. The commentator Matthew Henry has a wonderful little comment about this, and he uses the illustration of uh, trouble, trouble, being good for you. 
and he uses an illustration of a cold wind trying to blow your coat off. Listen to what he says. I love Matthew Henry's little comment. The Rabshakeh and Sennacherib intended to frighten Hezekiah away from the Lord, but actually they frighten him to the Lord. The wind, instead of forcing the traveler's coat from off his back, makes him wrap it all the closer around him. The more Rabshakeh reproaches God, the more Hezekiah honors God. Trouble is happy trouble if it leads us to pray and to trust in the living God. Trouble is happy trouble if it leads us to, as it were, take God as our covering cloak and button, button ourselves ever tighter up in him. I think this may be what the psalmist meant in Psalm 119, verse 71, which is a little bit of a funny verse. It says, good for me that I was afflicted. Psalm 119, verse 71, good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I think King Hezekiah would say, good for me that I was afflicted, that I might lean on the promises of God. That when the cold wind of impossible trouble blew, it didn't make me lose my faith and let go of the promises of God as a cloak that would blow away from me, but it made me wrap myself all the tighter in the promises of God. We got a little thing in our, somewhere in our house, a little quote from Charles Spurgeon where he says, I've looked at it so many times where Spurgeon says, how thankful am I for every storm which has wrecked me upon the rock which is Jesus Christ. What we have to fear, church, is letting go of Christ. You need fear no storm that makes you cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the lesson one of the lessons here in Hezekiah's narrative. And the first thing Hezekiah realized is that he didn't have anything. He, 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 was, he was empty. Do you realize that you don't have the answer to the problems in your life? The, the, the army of Assyria was so much more powerful than the pathetic little army of Judah. And Hezekiah made the first right move when he dropped human resources and he called out to the living God. As soon as we convince ourselves that we can handle it, hello? As soon as we convince ourselves that we can handle it, we are letting the storm completely turn us upside down and submerge us underwater that we may never get out of. The, uh, the thing is, Hezekiah knew that though he had nothing, he had three things. He had the Lord, verse 1. He had the prophet or the word of God, the word of the Lord, verse 2. And he had prayer. He had prayer. First, he had the Lord. He goes into the house of the Lord to meet with the Lord. The first thing he had was he had God. And he had a humble dependence on God. There it is, church. If you are facing a storm, the first thing I'm asking you is, do you know that you have God? And do you have a humble dependence upon God? The second thing that Hezekiah had 
was he had the prophet. Because it says right there in verse 2 that he sent for Isaiah the prophet. So first, you have God, a humble dependence on God. Second, you have the prophet of God or the word of God. So I would say this, you have a ready reception of the word of God. When you are facing a storm, do you have a ready reception of the word of God? You send for the prophet. You send for the scriptures. He had God, a humble dependence on God. He had the prophet, a ready reception of the word of God. And then third, he had prayer, a quickness to pray in every situation, a quickness to pray in every situation, a relentlessness to pray without ceasing. But church, I know and you know we don't face storms like that. Instead of a humble dependence on God, we just turn to God like as a last resort when the money runs out and the friends run out and everything else runs out. And instead of a ready reception of the Word of God, we just open the Word of God so occasionally, so sparingly, when we should be meditating on it day and night. And instead of a quickness to pray in every situation, we just, we go days and even weeks without a significant time of prayer. We need to know that all we have is God and the Word of God, the prophet of God, and prayer. God loves it when we humble ourselves to seek Him, when we go to the Lord in prayer. Notice that King Hezekiah is no longer wearing his royal robes. And King Hezekiah, this is significant, though he sends his servants to call out to Isaiah, he doesn't send his servants or his ministers or his deacons or whoever they were to say, you guys go pray about it. He takes off his royal robes, he puts on sackcloth, and he gets down on his face and he himself prays about it. He empties himself and he humbles himself totally before the living God. And notice in verse 2 that when he sends for Isaiah, I just want to tell you, church, you can do the same thing. You can send for Isaiah any time, day or night. If your storm wakes you up at 2.22 in the morning and your heart is racing because you're anxious about it, you can send for Isaiah right then. If you read him on your phone, you don't even have to turn the lamp on and disturb whoever's in the room with you. You can send for Isaiah anytime. You can send for David. You can send for Peter. You can send for Moses. You can send for John, the beloved disciple. You have the word of God. A Bible which is closed and neglected belongs to people who will be devastated by the storms in their lives. A Bible that is well-worn and constantly open belongs to people who will face storms, maybe even more significant storms than people whose Bibles are closed. But when they face storms, they will say how I bless God that every storm has made me dig into this word deeper and cling to these promises closer. And this whole chapter, of course, is a lesson on prayer. When you know you have nothing but prayer, you know you have what you need because you have prayer, which is the link to the living God. Amy and I read this wonderful little book. It was, it's uh, been reprinted a couple times by the author's name is Paul Miller and the title of the book is A Praying Life and he just has this wonderful line in there about he has a chapter about pray without ceasing and how hard it is to pray without ceasing and we're constantly beating ourselves up that we don't pray enough and we're not disciplined enough to pray enough and he just has this one line in there that I'll never forget this is what he says you don't need self-discipline to pray continuously that's interesting 
You don't need self-discipline to pray continuously. You just need to be poor in spirit. How true. How true. If you're poor in spirit, if you know how needy you are, you pray without ceasing. You pray without ceasing. These constant prayers, God, I need you. God, thank you. God, I messed that up. Will you help me fix it? God, I'm worried about that person. Will you work in just this poor spirit that, that leans everything on the Lord? God loves that kind of humility. In the last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, verse 2, the living God says, all these things my hand has made and all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look, him who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, verse 2, God loves, God loves to meet humility and dependence upon himself. And so as Isaiah shows us that King Hezekiah has God and, prayer and the prophet and prayer, he puts his finger right on the issue in verse 4, doesn't he? It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent, and he'll rebuke these words. Therefore, lift up your prayer. You notice that. It may be. I'm not sure that they know exactly what the outcome is going to be. But they do know this, God is living and God is seeing this and God cares about it. And they know that it's not too difficult for God to deliver them. Classic text in uh, Abraham and Sarah, when the announcement comes, you're going to have a baby. They're like, that's impossible. People like us don't have babies. Genesis 18 verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Same rhetorical question, expecting, of course, a negative answer. In Jeremiah 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth. Is anything too difficult for you? Listen, church, the character of God is the foundation of prayer. And the goodness of God is the ground of prayer. And the glory of God is the goal of prayer. And the fatherhood, the loving fatherhood of God is the relationship of prayer. And the wisdom and sovereignty of God is the trust and the absolute letting go and completely trusting God in prayer. And the power of God. You see, we trust his power that he's able to do it but we trust his sovereign plan in wisdom if he will choose to do it or not. This story in Isaiah 37 shows us a miraculous deliverance. There are other stories in Scripture where godly people do not receive here and now a miraculous deliverance. And I don't want to overread it, but this is, I think, part of what it's getting at in verse 4 when it says, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words. You remember the, you remember, I have so much respect for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't you? You remember what they said when they were staring down Nebuchadnezzar and they were not exactly sure what God would do, but one thing they knew, Nebuchadnezzar was no God. And they said this in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And we pray and fast. And with some of you, I have prayed and wept with some of you for a miraculous deliverance. But even if the miraculous deliverance doesn't come, God will hold you in the palm of his hand. Don't ever doubt the living God. He's able and he's good. And if he withholds a miraculous deliverance for a time, he's not going to let go of you. So that's verses 1 through 7 in our story. Let's keep going through, uh, where are we, verse 8. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lashish. Now the king heard concerning Tiraka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you, and he heard and he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria, Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations of my fathers, the nations my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezep, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Ivan? God does what he says and he draws Sennacherib away with a rumor that there's a skirmish in another place. But the king of Assyria has to send another taunt back to Judah and he puts his thumb right on the issue in verse 10, doesn't he? Are you going to let your God make you trust him instead of my threats? He puts his finger right on the issue. And then he lists his, he lists all of his victories. Really what I see verses 11, 12, and 13 is the king of Assyria saying, walk by sight. Just look at what people have done. Just stew in the crock pot of your spirit on what people have said to you and what people have done to you. And just look, just look at earthly circumstances. And the more, if he could get, if the king of Assyria could get the king of Judah to do that, I think the whole thing would have been lost. I, I think that's in the because you prayed part of it. He, he, instead of looking by sight at everything that, that human eyes can see, Hezekiah, by the grace of God, he walked by faith and he lifted it up to God in prayer. Then the best part of the story is in verses 14 through 20. And it is so good that I can't even deal with it right now and uh, I want to spend next week really going through 14 to 20 but we'll read it because it's the it's the core of the story Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread that letter before the Lord and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord O Lord of hosts God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim 
You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations of their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. They were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Man, I can't get over how good verse 20 is. That's like the best end of a prayer ever. Notice, just to mention a couple of things, and hopefully we'll loop back to this next week. Uh, Notice that when Hezekiah receives the letter and reads it, look what it says. Hezekiah went to the house of the Lord and he started to pray. Notice that Hezekiah isn't like, uh, guys, like what kind of mood was Sennacherib in? Um, Like exactly how many horsemen did he have? We always want to gather more human data, like before we pray. Why? Why? I don't mean to, uh, um, I, don't, I don't mean to completely wreck you if you've done this. It's not a, it's not a, a guilt-bearing thing, but it is the case, isn't it? That often when we say, I say to you, you say to me, well, you know, Angie has cancer, let's pray for her. Then the next thing someone asks is, well, when was her last appointment? And uh, is she seeing Dr. Silverman? Because my sister-in-law saw Dr. Silverman. And is that at the new clinic on 20 years? Is that at the old clinic in Sturdivant? And what are her numbers? And we, we, we talk for so long about why she needs praying for that basically we, 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 we got to run before we can even pray for her. I'm not saying the details don't matter and there's a place for that, but... I just think if we say we're going to pray, you know what? Let's just pray. Let's just pray. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer. And man, I love that Hezekiah used the letter, like the physical letter. He rolled it out before the Lord and he prayed about it. I've done, I, I've done that more times than I can count. Get an email, you know, you're the worst pastor ever. Why don't they fire you? <laughs> Which comes in. I'm like, there, there have been many times when I've printed that thing out and I put it down and I just say, God in heaven, like, I am a sinner. And this person that sent this may also be a crazy sinner, but God, I'm a crazy sinner. And I, I know there's things in my life that, 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 that aren't right. But God, help me. God, help me. And I just love how the prayer is so focused on God. So focused on God. We'll, we'll uh, hopefully go through the details of it next week. But I just, I just want to commend to you this week that when you pray, focus your prayer on God. Listen to Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2. I just want to make the point that the, the, the right thing that, that Hezekiah did was in his time of trial. He did not, with his eyes, try to pierce the distance of the earthly horizon 
to figure out how he could get more horsemen or how he could figure this or work that angle. He lifted his eyes up to the Lord. That's what we must do. That's what we must do. We must lift our eyes up to the Lord in prayer. We spend so much time analyzing the circumstances around us and so little time lifting our eyes up to the Lord in prayer. And that's the, that's the great theme of the book of Isaiah. That's why this is the, like the capstone narrative in the middle of the book because the central theme of the book of Isaiah is that God and God alone saves. So salvation is not going to come by looking at Egypt and looking at Assyria and looking at the horsemen and looking at human technology. It's going to come from the Lord. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Isaiah 45, verse 22. God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The central theme of the book of Isaiah is salvation is salvation because God is God. Why does God save sinners? Because he's God for his own name's sake. Why does God condemn unrepentant sinners to hell? For his name's sake. Because he's God. Isaiah defines everything by its relation to God. And I want to tell you, even just to take a few seconds to tell you, the Christian gospel is that God, the one we have sinned against, has saved us from the wrath of God in the very crucifixion of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're, if you're here and you have never believed that gospel, or I'm just telling you as flatly as I can, if, if you're here because you think that church attendance or living cleaner than you used to live is the way to get saved, this is anti-Christ. This is not the way of the gospel. The gospel is that though we have sinned against God, the only way that we could be saved is not by righteous deeds that we have done, but by God's provision. Isaiah 53, by God's provision that the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Trust in Jesus Christ, be saved. And so we see his prayer is so God-centered and then we can quickly summarize the end of the story. Verse 21, Then Isaiah the son of Amoz sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. I just want you to notice that Isaiah is speaking, but it says in verse 21 that it's the Lord's words that are coming through Isaiah. And there's that, there's that word because. It's like, it's mind-blowing. The, the living God of the universe says to a human being, because you have prayed to me. The Lord explained. The Lord explained that it was Hezekiah's prayerful, faithful trust in the Lord that would enable Hezekiah to see the hand of the Lord at work in Hezekiah's life. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Verse 23, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. That's the core. 
that God through Isaiah puts his finger on it. That's the fatal flaw of Sennacherib. That's the deepest sin is that Sennacherib lumped God in with all the other gods. And the people of Judah say, yeah, I'm sure you did defeat these people and those people, but those were not the people of God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. God alone is God. That's the theme of the book of Isaiah. Verse 24, by your servants, you've mocked the Lord and you've said with my many chariots, I've gone up to the heights of the mountains and the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, to its most fruitful forest. I dug the wells, I drank the water to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field like tender grass like grass on the housetops blighted before it grows I know your God says I know verse 28 I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. You ever seen someone rage against God? I defy you to prove to any of us that that plan worked out well. The consequences of raging against God, verse 29, the consequences of raging against God are that you um, basically become a dumb donkey, a pack animal that just carries the load that God wants to put on you and goes where he pushes you to go. This is, uh, this is the reality of the wisest you know, Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the fool who despises the fear of the Lord, oh, he'll become, he'll become basically like an animal. Then it goes on in verse 30, this shall be the sign for you, and the sign is that the, because of the uh, impending siege, they, uh, Judah couldn't do the harvest the way that they wanted to, and they were concerned they would have enough food. And so verses 30 through 32 basically is God saying, I'm going to provide even the small harvest will still provide for you for the, year, for the two years ahead. This shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. In the second year what springs from that. In the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. From out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In typical Isaianic fashion, he takes this short-term prophecy that the harvest is going to work okay, and he says, and by the way, I'm going to bring in a whole harvest, Romans 9 through 11, of, of redeemed Israelites when I return. Verse 33, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot a single arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by that same way he's going to return. And he'll not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and the sake of my servant David. And then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 
185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharezar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they had escaped into the land of Ararat, Isharadon, his son, reigned in his place. You know, the time is fleeting in this service, but that's not a problem. Because the dramatic ending of the story, there's, it's almost like there's nothing to it. He just says, an angel came down and he killed 185,000 of them. That's it. It's so short and to the point. Why? Because the real drama doesn't take place in verse 36. The real drama of this narrative takes place in verses 14 through 20. The real drama in this narrative takes place in verses 14 through 20. It doesn't actually take place in verse 36. The supernatural shocking scene of an angel just filleting this army, it it just gets a couple of words in the Hebrew to describe it. The prayer is where it's all at. And the because of the prayer is where it's all at. I love the connection in verse 35. Uh, essentially, the living God is agreeing with Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah prayed, if you're going to save us, save us so that you will be glorified and the world will see that you keep your promises. Verse 35, God says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, for my glory, for the sake of my covenant, keeping my promise to David. What a wonderful story, church. And the the last thing I want to say about the story is that uh, Hezekiah, Hezekiah was a person like you. Don't miss this. Everything that I've described that he did, you can do too. You can admit you got nothing on your own and you're overwhelmed by the storms of life. You can cling to the prophets and send for Isaiah and send for Peter and send for Paul. And you can pray. What is the best thing that Hezekiah does? The best thing that Hezekiah does is that he goes to the Lord. What is the best thing that Hezekiah does when he's in the presence of the Lord? The best thing that Hezekiah does when he's in the presence of the Lord is he trusts God and he prays to God. Women of Racine Bible Church, you can do that. Men of Racine Bible Church, you can do that. And when you go to God, you say, God, th- 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 this, this whole, whatever's happening, I know that ultimately it's not all about me. I know that it's about your name and your glory. So God, I trust myself to you. You can do that. You can admit you've got nothing. And you can, you can find a... Find a a thread of prayer that says, God, I don't know what to do and I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know that you are God and I want you to be glorified in my life. You can do that. And if you do, God will be glorified. The people of God will be edified uh, because, because you pray in that way in the name of Jesus. Let's, let's close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, as we have received your word, oh, now would you, Holy Spirit, make the book live to us. Show us the living God reality in the book and show us our need and our great Savior who meets every need. And may the living word of God now live within us by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.